Turn to Luke chapter 22. We're going to be reading from uh, verse 66 in Luke uh, 22. I'm reading from our Uncover Luke Gospel, if you've got that there. It's an NIV version. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you say that I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Chapter 23. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, he is, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be the Messiah, the king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and to the crowd, I find no basis uh, for a charge against this man. But they insisted, he stirs up the people over all Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and he's come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was uh, under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. For what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. For this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and he said to them, You brought me this man as one who is inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! released Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into the prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will, have him put, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud cries, they instantaneously demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will.
Thanks, Nathan. It's a pretty harsh passage. I'm just going to pray uh, for myself and for all of us, and then uh, we'll get started. Uh, Lord, speak to us uh, through your word. May it be your words that are uh, spoken, not mine, uh, and may our hearts receive it, not just our ears. Amen. I am a classic channel surfer. We'll just give Tracy a second. Thanks, guys. I'm a, cl- I'm a classic channel surfer, and kind of ironically, uh, I was surfing on the TV, uh, driving everyone nuts because I never watch one thing for more than about you know, 10 seconds or so, unless I find something I really like. And uh, I happened across this documentary. Uh, it, it was like a, one of those Q&A kind of programs, uh, and it was about surfers, uh, a real, real surfer, not channel surfers like me. Uh, and it was about surfers in northern New South Wales who'd been attacked by sharks. And there was this big discussion. There's a whole group of people. Some were marine biologists and some were surfing guys and some were this and some were that. Uh, and they were telling the accounts of real, real events, and some of them had actually been attacked by sharks. You know, one guy had a big chomp on his leg and, and so on. And as these different people had told the stories of being attacked by a shark, it became apparent to me that they were doing two things. One, they were telling, yeah, this, this event happened, a shark came, it bit me on the leg, it swam away, I survived. I saw a guy get chomped by a shark, he died, I didn't that sort of stuff. They were telling historical real fact. But the things that they emphasised was really obvious as to what things in the chain of events really hit them and what things didn't so much. And I won't repeat uh, the details because if you're a person who has nightmares, I might give you nightmares. Um, But this passage does the same thing for us. It tells us some historical real events but it also gives us a glimpse of what Luke is trying to say to us because he emphasises some stuff and he seems to not worry so much about other things. And so today I'm going to try to pick up the stuff that Luke emphasises by doing this. We're going to look at the different people who are involved in this part of Jesus' journey to the cross And, you know, for weeks we've been headed for the cross now. We've been with Jesus as he's gone through different places on his way to Jerusalem. He came into Jerusalem. He shared the Passover with his disciples. And now all of a sudden in the middle of the night he's been arrested and dragged off. We're going to look at some questions as we look at the different people who are involved in this part of the events. Who's involved? What's their role? Why are they involved? And then we're going to ask, why is Luke telling us this? Why? Why is he, what is he trying to say to us? And as we look at it, I've, I've only chosen a selection of people to look at. There's whole, there's a, you could do this a number of different ways. We're going to look at the Jewish leaders. We're going to look at Pilate. We're going to look at Herod. And we're going to look at the crowd. And if you do the maths, there's sort of four questions, four groups of people. Uh, that's 16 in 30 minutes. It's going to be pretty punchy. <laughs> so first of all, let's talk about the Jewish leaders. Now, the Jewish leaders were sort of still in charge of Jewish stuff. The nation was under uh, Roman rule, but here's, here's a historian's take on, on 
how the thing was going down, the whole politics of the day. Uh, so Roman conquered Jerusalem in about 63 BC. This brought the region under Roman control, although they still used local leaders to be their governors or their politicians. And the most famous was a ruthless military commander called Herod the Great. Remember Herod the Great? He was the one who was going to top all the babies who were under a certain age in order to get rid of Jesus. After Herod's death, his son, Herod Antipas, not Herod the Great, but Herod Antipas, ruled Galilee in the north, and he's the Herod that's mentioned here in this passage. Another son ruled in the south until about 6 AD, uh, at which time the Romans started sending governors in. So instead of using local guys, they started importing uh, Roman governors into Jerusalem to manage there. And that's why Pilate is a Roman governor, but Herod was a Jewish governor, even though they both essentially had the same task, to rule on behalf of the Romans. The Jewish people administered their own internal affairs and the high priests oversaw worship in the temple and the council, or the Sanhedrin, which is this group of people that we come across first, they adjudicated matters of Jewish law. So the Jewish leaders have finally managed to get Jesus in their control. You remember there's been a few passages where they've been plotting to do this, they've been wondering how they can stop him, they've been talking amongst themselves about how we can uh, kill him and now in the middle of the night they have arrested Jesus with the help of Judas, they've taken him away, they were worried about the crowds uh, and so they did it in the dead of night and they're in the process of executing their plan to kill Jesus. These are the people who lead the church are essentially they're undertaking an assassination exercise. It's no wonder Jesus had things to say about the Jewish leaders or the church that they were leading. And so the first thing they do is they hold a trial, not, the, uh, not in the way that they would normally do it. I can't delve into the details, but there was a huge number of defects, legal, Jewish legal defects in this exercise. And so it wasn't really a trial, it was a pretend trial. Uh, they wanted to do it so that they could quickly finish their bit, whisk him off to Pilate. Question is why? Why were they doing this? Well, the Jewish leaders were threatened by Jesus. He was debunking their strict, burdensome religion. Uh, he was threatening their position of power. The Jewish leaders had been the target of some, some of the harshest things that Jesus had had to say during his ministry. He had embarrassed them, he'd insulted them, he'd exposed them. And it's kind of ironic that those people who were supposed to be the custodians of God's story, they were supposed to be the ones that knew the history of God and man together and were supposed to pass it on to the new generations, they were the ones that Jesus was having a really big crack at. The first, one of the things that the uh, Jewish leaders do in this trial is they ask Jesus questions. But were they really looking for the answer? I would propose to you not. If you are the Messiah, then tell us. They weren't really looking for the Messiah. What they were looking for is ammunition to do what they wanted to do. It's not like they're having second thoughts about who they think he is. They're actually just looking for a way to funnel him 
into their justice system and bring a charge that demands death. They were, they were baiting him to commit blasphemy. And eventually, Jesus gives them what they're looking for. He says, yeah, yeah, I'm the son of God. It is as you say, you said it. Why is Luke writing this? Well, there's a bigger, broader reason, and we're going to get to that at the very end. But in the meantime, before we jump into judgment and say, well, you know, at least we don't run a church like that. At least we're not like the Jewish leaders. At least we're not pharisaical in the way we go about our faith. I believe that it is possible for us to be like the Jewish leaders in quite a number of ways. We can be so religious that we neglect the love of God. It's possible to do. I've done myself. Hong Kong, get out of my way. I'm on the way to church. <laughs> you know? Shut up and get in the car. We're running late to see to worship Jesus. It's, it's, those little things are funny in a way, but we do that. We, and it can get big. It can be, I'm sorry, I can't help you because I'm on the way to Bible study. I know you really need my help, but I've got a priority here. And what is my priority? Is it looking religious or is it actually showing love? I just, I just showed it, didn't I? We can be motivated by revenge. Instead of seeking truth, we can actually look for things that incriminate or look for things that justify the position that I'm taking. We can become defensive when we're confronted with God's truth. We're naturally inclined to want the throne in our own lives. We can be presented with all the evidence in the world but still choose not to believe. We might not mock Jesus out loud, but we might do so in our hearts. Or we might mock his people or his creation or his work or his plan. We can be the ones who falsely accuse. Or we might completely fail to recognise the hand of God amongst us, just like they did. Jesus, Jesus, the very person that God sent, Jesus himself was amongst them. And they missed it. I wonder how often that happens to us. Jesus is working and we miss it. I told you it would be punchy. We're moving on. Pilate. So Pilate is a Roman governor. He's been sent from Rome. He's in Jerusalem. That's where he governs on behalf of the Roman rule. And if the Jewish leaders want to put someone to death, they needed the permission of the Romans to do it. So they could do a whole lot of stuff, but they couldn't put someone to death without permission from Rome. So you heard it, at daybreak, they have their little trial because they weren't allowed to do it at night. They have their little trial at daybreak and straight off to Pilate. Uh, and instead of going into the palace, we read in, in the Gospel of John, instead of going into the palace, they want to stay ceremonially clean so they can finish their Jewish festival. So they don't go in, they ask Pilate, please can you come out? We'd like to stay right with God while we assassinate this guy. And, and what are they doing? In order to increase their chances with Pilate, they start to bring false charges against Jesus. They don't just say, he's committed blasphemy, we'd like to put him to death, please. They start to say other things like, He's subverting the nation. He's a traitor to the nation. He's opposing the taxes, which was a lie. What does Jesus say about taxes? Render to Caesar what's Caesar's, render to God what's God's. And then they say, and he also claims to be the Christ, which is a king. 
And we see elsewhere they say, we've got no king but Caesar. He's threatening the Roman rule, Pilate. You need to do something about this. So Pilate, naturally, he, he undertakes his job. He's a governor. He, part of the justice system requires him to test this stuff. And so he questions Jesus and he can't find any basis for punishing him, let alone executing him. But he comes across this convenient fact. Oh, this guy's from Galilee. He's from up north. And so this is a classic pastor buck. Now, I've got to say, I do this, all right? And I particularly do this in my work. If I get someone on the phone, it's a new query, I'll listen to it for a little while. It's really not something I want to do. I fish around for a reason to, you know, bounce it to the guy in the next office. Or maybe even affirm. I hope I've never done this to you. And, and, and the clues are when I start to say things like, look, I'm wondering whether you're really the, it's something that I really need to take on. I'm wondering whether there's a better lawyer for you. And so I start to use these kinds of words. And, and Herod, sorry, Pilate, he, he sort of says, well, look, I wonder whether there's a better place for this to be adjudicated. Uh, you're from Galilee. Herod's the governor of Galilee. Although we're all in Jerusalem, it's really a local guy from a local place. He needs his local governor. Uh, and Herod, because Herod is Jewish, he's in Jerusalem for the Passover. And so Herod is conveniently in Jerusalem. And Pilate says, great, I'm sending him to Herod. It was not only politically astute, because there'd been a bit of tension in the relationship, one being a local Jewish and one being an import from Rome, um, but it was also a way to just get rid of the problem. We've got a really aggressive crowd of people wanting to do something terrible to a guy who seems to have seems, seems to be innocent. Uh, and Herod, we'll deal with him in a second, but Herod ends up bouncing him back to Pilate. Herod's got the same take. Uh, can't see any basis, but I really don't want to make the decision. Someone else can do it. So Pilate ends up having to deal with Jesus twice, something that we don't really see in the other Gospels. Um, and I wonder why, well, we'll talk about maybe why that is in a minute. Pilate then has to deal with Jesus a second time and he tells the people three times in all, he comes out and he says, there is no reason for this. There is no basis. You're bringing a charge and I can't see it. What I'm going to do is appease you by whipping him and I'm going to appease my conscience and my role and let him go, release him. And the crowd is not having a bar of it. They will not listen. Faced with an angry mob, Pilate finally relents and he hands Jesus over to be crucified. Why? Why is it that he does that? And why are we being told that? Pilate seems convinced of Jesus' innocence, but he's not willing to stake his own reputation or risk an uprising for the sake of protecting an innocent man. Pilate is really only interested in one thing, and that's keeping the peace. He's trying to be a people pleaser at the same time as making a decision. Anyone in leadership knows that's a really hard thing to balance. And you can see his attempt to appease everyone. I'll whip him and I'll release him. I'll punish him, but I won't go through with the death penalty. It seems like he actually wants to do the right thing unless it costs him. He wants to do the right thing unless it costs him. And he comes to a point of decision where it is going to cost someone. 
someone is going to pay. There's either going to be a riot, which is really bad for Pilate. He gets judged on these things. This is part of his KPIs. Peace in the city. And the city has gone swollen to a massive size. He probably can't afford a riot. And so after trying to have a foot in both camps, Pilate realises that he can't offload the decision to someone else. He tried that. He can't protect this innocent man and still get a bonus. And so he hands Jesus over and he allows a man who has actually been convicted of the kinds of crimes and worse, the kinds of crimes that Jesus was accused of and more, he hands over Barabbas to go free and he hands over Jesus to be killed. There's a bigger reason that Luke is telling us all that and we'll talk about that at the end. But in the meantime, think about whether you or I could ever be like Pilate. Have you ever tried to have a foot in both camps? Ever tried that? Or have you ever tried to rely on someone else to make your decision about Jesus? Have you ever just automatically adopted what your parents say about Jesus as what you say? Or what your friends say about Jesus? I heard my friend saying this, and I think that too, but you're not sure why. Maybe you automatically adopt what your Bible study leader says about Jesus instead of actually making your own decision. Maybe it's your favourite person that you like to podcast. Maybe it's your pastor. Maybe your foot in both camps is coming here and fitting in here and then going back to uni or work or school and fitting in there as much as you can. Have you ever come to a point where a decision about Jesus is going to cost you and you start second-guessing the cost? It's exactly what Pilate did. Maybe you're at that point right now. Maybe you're facing a decision where the God-honouring choice is going to be an expensive one. Maybe the God-honouring choice will be one that people really won't understand. The question is, are you willing to take that decision rather than revert to a position where you're happy to do what's right as long as I don't get uncomfortable? I'm happy to do the right thing as long as it doesn't cost me too much. Herod, the local governor from Galilee, down in Jerusalem for the festival. He's different to Pilate because he's Jewish and not Roman. And so he is given the opportunity to decide Jesus' fate. Pilate tried the handball. That's about the only football reference I'm going to make today. Uh, Pilate tries the handball across to Herod, and Herod says, great, this is awesome. I've heard about this Jesus. I'm I'm very, very curious to see what he can do. I've heard that he can do miracles. I'm into this. I like a good magic show. But Herod is really disappointed in Jesus. Because not only does Jesus give him no miracles or signs or wonders, but he doesn't even engage. He doesn't even answer his questions. 
You see it in uh, 23 verse 9. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. And in a sense, why would you? I mean, Pilate has sent him to Herod saying, I see no basis for a charge. Why would Jesus uh, engage in this? But when Herod can't get any entertainment or fun out of Jesus, he decides to make his own. And so he dresses Jesus up in a royal robe. And it's not just the soldiers now making fun of Jesus. It's actually Herod as well. And then still dressed in a royal robe and probably by now wearing a crown made out of twisted thorny branches. Jesus is sent back to Pilate. Herod sees no basis for the death penalty. He's had his fun. He appreciates the gesture from Pilate to be included in the process. But he says, you know what, I'm not going to make the decision about this guy. You can. He does the handball straight back. After all, we're in Jerusalem, Pilate. This is your turf, not mine. So why are we being told this? Why why is Herod being mentioned? He's interested in Jesus, but his interest is superficial. He's amazed at signs and wonders, and he tries to get Jesus to, you know, participate. I imagine maybe some of the questions would have been, Jesus, if you can perform a miracle and prove to me that you are who you are, I'll let you go. But just as it was prophesied in Isaiah 53, Jesus is oppressed and afflicted yet doesn't open his mouth. Like a sheep before a shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. You know, some of us, and I include myself in this, some of us can have the traits of Herod. We can be superficial. We can be looking for entertainment, interest something that's controversial or something that makes me go, ooh. We can be dissatisfied with our church if it's not meeting my needs. And I say that carefully because it is important for a church to speak the word of God. But we can become consumers here. Do you know this place is really not designed to be service provider, service consumer. This is supposed to be like Team meeting. Game is game starts Monday. Team meeting again next Sunday. When the fun ends, we can start making our own fun. We can make light of the things that God takes seriously. <coughs> Lastly, the crowd. Initially, well, sorry, I'll say it again. At the very start, in the middle of the night, the crowd is very small. It's really just made up of some select, uh, select number of the Jewish leaders and some soldiers on hand. They're the ones who make the arrest and they take them off to start the process. By the time it gets to Pilate, the crowd was made of some onlookers as well. Since Pilate came out of the palace into a public space and it says Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people, there was some publicity to this. 
By the time Pilate has seen, the, seen Jesus for the second time, there seems to be a reasonably loud crowd and a fairly large one, one large enough to be chanting and one large enough to make Pilate worried about a riot. It's significant that the crowd is still around. In fact, it's significant, in my mind at least, that the crowd is playing this role. After all, who were the, Jews, who were the Jewish leaders worried about? Why is it that they arrested Jesus in the middle of the night? Because they were afraid of the crowd. Jesus was popular. And yet now, the crowd seems to have flipped. The call of the crowd, the behaviour, seems to catch us a little bit off guard. But they're stirred up by what the Jewish leaders are saying. They're stirred up by the chanting. The call from people they respect or look up to. People who've had influence on, who have influence in public life, they're very persuaded by what those people are saying. And strangely, the crowd starts calling for Jesus, the innocent one, the one who has been judged innocent, to be crucified, and they're calling for the release of Barabbas. There's a big reason why, Jesus, why Luke is writing all this, but we'll get to the big reason in a minute. But what has happened to this crowd? Um, is this not the crowd that welcomed Jesus coming into Jerusalem a little while back, saying, Hosanna? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Is it a different crowd? Possibly. There was a lot of people in Jerusalem at the time. But more likely, Luke is drawing our attention to how fickle and shallow these people are. Their convictions are just being pushed and pulled by the people around them. With great ease, the crowd has been swayed from Jesus' lovers to Jesus' haters. Not just indifferent. They're now calling for him to be killed in the most cruel and humiliating fashion that was possible. And without a serious and deliberate decision about Jesus, we can be like the crowd. We can be pushed and pulled by the influence of other people. And if we are so easily swung in our views about Jesus from one position to another, can we even claim to have made our own decision about Jesus or are we really just adopting the position of others from time to time? You can't abrogate your responsibility about deciding about Jesus. You can't say so-and-so says this about Jesus and so do I. You actually need to make your own decision. And it's not just any old decision. It is the decision that decides your eternal destiny. Don't let other people make your decision by default. Don't let other people make that decision for you. If you haven't ever made a decision, can I ask you, can I dare you, pick up one of these and read it for yourself don't bother podcasting preachers, reading books written by men. Read the book written by God. Read what Jesus says. Read what Jesus says about himself and make a decision as to who you think he is.
Now we get to the bigger reason why. I'm going to tell you another TV analogy. I'm not sure why all my analogies are television-based. Maybe I watch too much TV. One of my favourite movies, The Born Identity. I don't know, who knows it? Yeah, great. Who thinks I look like Matt Damon? <laughs> I've been accused of that. If, oh, big thumbs down. Okay. <laughs> look, a handful of people say I do. I think he looks a little bit like me. He's got a way to go. <laughs> it's an action movie. It's a bit scary. It's quite suspenseful. It's not a movie I get to watch often because Kaz and I have different tastes in movies. But the whole point of the story is this guy, Jason Bourne, he, he's been some sort of brainwashed agent who is a killing machine out doing assassination things. And he's, he wakes up one day and he realises what's been going on and he, he's on a mission and his mission is to discover his true identity. And there's this great scene in the film where he shirt fronts this guy and he grabs him by the, by the shirt and he shakes him and he just says, Who am I? Who am I? Because he knows that this guy has answers. Luke is doing that to us right here. He's shaking us by the shirt front and he's saying, Who is Jesus? Who do you think Jesus is? Because everything in life, your identity, your purpose, your future, your destiny, everything rides on this question. Who is he? The whole history of mankind, the whole history of the planet pivots right here on this very question. That was the question for the Jewish leaders. It was the question that Pilate asked, are you the king of the Jews? It was the question that Herod was trying to get to. And it was the question, Luke records the only question that Jesus answered. The only one that Luke bothered to record was Jesus' answer to that very question. Are you then the son of God? And Jesus says, yeah. That's exactly how you say it. It's exactly as you say it. That's what Luke is getting across here. Remember at the start of Luke, he says, I'm writing... An orderly account for you, excellent Theophilus, so that you can know the certainty of the things you've been taught. That's the certainty. Who is Jesus? He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. And Luke is shaking us by the shirt and saying, you need to make a decision. You need to know this to be true and you need to decide what to do about it. The Jews... And Pilate and Herod and the crowd, they all stood in the very presence of Jesus. And they all missed it. They all missed it. Luke is saying to us, don't miss it. Don't miss it. I love being able to say to you that we live in an age of grace. We, right here, stand in the very presence of Jesus. You and I are alive, but breathing. We've not yet been subjected to eternal judgment. And Jesus is asking you that same question. Who am I? Who am I to you? Am I your fire insurance policy? Is that what I am to you? Am I someone that you think about occasionally? And then you go back on about your daily life. 
Am I just a name that you use when you pray? Am I just a name that you use as a swear word? Am I something that you let others decide about because it's all too hard? Haven't bothered looking into it for myself. Or am I the one who made a a deliberate decision to die for you because of my outrageously generous, unconditional love for you? Is that who Jesus is? Jesus is here asking us in this book, which is alive and speaking to you and to me, Jesus is asking us, who do you say that I am? Not who do your parents say, not who does your pastor say, who do you say that I am? He's given us the answer. Don't miss it. Let me pray for us as we go to our final song. Lord God, thank you for being here. Thank you for the writing that Luke captured and the series of events for all those interactions thank you Lord that we're given every opportunity to see and understand who you are help us not to miss it Lord ask that if anyone here has not yet decided for themselves who Jesus is for them, that you would stir them up. Speak to us, Jesus. Speak right into our hearts so that we can know for sure, for certain, who you are. Amen.